Did you hear screaming last night? You'll get used to it. When the madam starts hurting herself again, be careful she doesn't blame it on you. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title like this one, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 124 today, which is back to Erica's choice. What did you pick for us today? I picked Dearest Sister from 2016. Directed by Maddie Doe, with Veluna Fetmani, Amfei Foon, Foma Panya, and Tambat Twisk. It's about a young Lao woman from the country who is sent to care for a blind cousin in the city who is having some frightening vision problems. Let me send an apology right away to our engineer, Klim Fandango, because I am still getting through a cold and it is tough for me right now. I like how your plot synopsis works on two levels there, by the way. Do you? Pretty clever. (laughs) We'll get into some of that. So just a bit of a background about the film and Maddie Doe, who I've had such a good time getting to know. Not personally, unfortunately, but through things written about her and things that she has said. So this was Maddie Doe's second feature film. She is the only female horror director working in Laos the only female director working in Laos, and she made their second horror film ever. She also did their first horror film. There's just no film infrastructure in the way that we might think of it in Laos. It's really a burgeoning industry. Yeah, there are a couple of aspects that I wanted to talk about about that whole thing before we even get into the film itself. I wanted to talk for a second about the political climate in Laos, specifically regarding censorship and the potential effects of that on the Lao film industry. We were just talking about daisies in our previous episode and the censorship issues and government interference that Vera Chitilova had to deal with in then Czechoslovakia. Laos is in sort of a similar situation, in some ways maybe even more strict than that. As far as the media in general, it's tough, almost to the point of feeling impenetrable when I look at it. Every single television and radio station is state-owned, and that's a total of about 75 when you put the two together, and every newspaper is government-affiliated. Just a couple years ago, the year this film came out, in fact, in 2016, Reporters Without Borders ranked it at 173rd out of 179 countries in terms of its Press Freedom Index. So, from our Western perspective, it feels like it must be incredibly difficult to create art in an environment like that. Propaganda and educational films, those have traditionally made up a lot of Lao mainstream cinema. They're easy to get made. But it sure feels like, since we've had this groundswell in the last decade or so, that audiences are definitely there for these things that are more boundary-pushing. And I think that's exactly what the authorities are afraid of. It's also just not been a priority over the last several decades. The population of Laos is 
six million people, and as far as I could find, there are only two operational movie theaters in the entire country. I think at the time that this one came out, Matty Doe said there was only even one operating. Yeah, so when a film like this appears, it feels like a minor miracle. And I think Maddie Doe is just the ingenious filmmaker to get through that system. And she looks at this as an opportunity to create something new. There's no precedent. She's really making it as she goes. I'm also so impressed and intrigued by her because with her first film, Chantali, she made that available with the raw footage online for anybody who wanted to learn the filmmaking process to re-edit. That's astounding. And everything she does also feels kind of like a family affair. She's got a rep company of these actors, and we could call them non-professional, but that's really because there isn't a huge film industry. And she made this with her husband. He wrote it. And one of the actors, the man who plays Anna's father in this, he was also a producer. He was the sound person on her first film. Yeah, I was saying that thing about how it's kind of hard to imagine what it must be like to try to get things made. But then there's also the flip side of this, the lack of infrastructure. It works a little bit in the opposite direction, too. One of the things that I've heard her say is that it makes it easier to collaborate because there is a lack of a formal film industry. It's not the be all end all for everyone that's involved. It's just not what many of the participants rely on for their main income. You mentioned the producer and the sound man and how everyone wears many hats. Well, they also wear a day job hat, and that's how they live. So things aren't cutthroat in the way that you might see elsewhere. She describes the climate among women filmmakers in Southeast Asia as being much more supportive and not at all like what she observed in the U.S., where people try to take women filmmakers down, including other women in the industry. And also, she feels like she doesn't have to do some of the things that feel like pandering and auxiliary things like social media as a succeed or fail proposition. So she can just concentrate on making films. Now, we call her a Lao filmmaker, but she was born in the U.S. and then moved back to Laos as an adult, which I think really contributes to her being especially attuned to the space that women occupy in the culture, having had to navigate both of those things in the West and the East. And one of my favorite and I think most remarkable parts of her story is that filmmaking wasn't even her focus until just a few years ago. It wasn't a lifelong goal. She didn't have parents necessarily like us who were navigating through cinematic waters and teaching her all about the classics. No, I think it really demonstrates how fantastic her artistic instincts are in general and her filmmaking instincts are in particular. She describes it as an accident as much as anything else. Lucky for us. Lucky for fans of genre cinema, of women filmmakers, of Asian films, that Lao Art Media Co. Limited was in need of content when they came to her. Is there any way to comprehend even? I asked this question fully knowing the answer. I, at least for me, I can't picture it. What it must be like being literally the only woman doing that kind of work in an entire country Calling her a pioneer feels like a real understatement. I certainly can't comprehend it. And when I came to this title, it was just totally blind. See what (laughs) I did right there? I was just looking for something to watch. And I read the description and read about all of these firsts or seconds that she's taking part in. And I didn't for one second think, 
this is a sophomore effort, or this is an amateur, or that anyone behind or in front of the camera was an amateur. Everything seems so assured. And you mentioned earlier about the whole social media thing. Is it accurate to say, though, that I think she has a really great social media presence? Oh, she does. I just think she doesn't approach it as I have to do this as an arm of my directorial work to make sure that I'm seen and I stay in the public eye. She seems so accessible. Yeah, she absolutely is. And for me, that came through Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest, which is one of the great genre festivals in the world, it takes place here in Austin every September, and that was where I first discovered her work and got to interact a little with her. And I didn't even know about that when I came to this film. Yeah, you found it completely independent of any suggestion of mine. Uh, Just want to say, let me tell you, she is beloved by that community, and rightly so, I think. Like you said, she's very approachable. She's really active within the festival's online groups. And she is a big horror fan, too. She's just a cinephile like us. And I think one of the things where we all find solidarity is that she describes being a video store kid. A lot of us have that experience in common and can totally relate. I think a lot of us can still picture that wall of covers that fascinated us as a kid and the particular layout of our neighborhood store particularly the horror section, maybe if you're like us, which might have had that aspect of forbidden fruit with all the salaciousness and gore on those covers. The one when the woman is pulling apart her lips and there's some sort of creature in her mouth. I remember that one. The dead pit, the VHS cover that had those flashing eyes that lit up. I can still see that in my mind's eye just like it was yesterday. Now, speaking of horror, when it comes to these types of international selections... Do you feel like horror is an easier, more universal sell than comedy or other genres? Possibly easier to adapt to, or maybe fewer instances that our cultural ignorance might be a hindrance? I do think horror is pretty universal, even if you're not quite catching all of the cultural elements, the folklore that might be traditional to whatever area the film is set in. I think even those folklore elements span different cultures. So in the West, we could see something in the East and still get a real handle on it. I think it's also really uniquely well-suited to including social drama elements. And so fans like us can find all of these interesting ways through and different connections. Yeah, I think I agree. Comedy seems to be the hardest to me because of catching inflection and tone References to things you may not have any experience with. The accuracy of the wordplay being translated. Even just a split-second lag of translation of reading the subtitles while the comic moment taking place has just left the screen. Yeah, I do think horror is more universal, I guess, overall. Even when it's something so culturally specific as lottery ghosts. Or is that just our experience with stuff like Mondo Macabro talking? Do you feel a comfort with that because of that, maybe? I guess I think of it a bit more elemental, and that is still sort of a Mondo Macabro thing. Seeing spooky, rotting, possibly ghosts on screen is scary, no matter where it is or what the possible message is. I think, though, there's a lot more discussion to be had around expectations and what sort of lens we are bringing to this film. And I think that starts right away when we're introduced to the character of Noak. Yeah, I see that. There are a lot of neat little details that we're just pausing to catch the slightest significance of and then moving on. 
It starts with her packing a bag and she's pausing to suggest the significance of some items. There's the moment where she pauses to light incense at a shrine outside of her house just before she leaves. And then she's leaving for the city for at least a year. And right away, these racial issues are brought up. Her boyfriend is upset at the potential for her to get a white fiancé, quote-unquote, and it's not a completely irrational fear, as her cousin has done pretty much that thing and done fairly well for herself in the process. The larger commentary there is this dilemma that Laos faces with the spreading influence of Westerners as they come in with their money, their culture, their customs, and that's treated subtly. We just get one mention of it here briefly, as we're introduced to Noak, but I have to think it's an important idea in the larger conversation because it's mentioned right away. And did you have an expectation or an idea of her right away? I think that I did. I think I was predisposed to think, oh, she's the country pure character. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I was more concerned for her in general, as it does seem very much like Country Mouse goes to the big city. And it seemed like she was in a difficult position right away in multiple senses. One of those being pure economics. She's got no money, no cell phone credit. So she's therefore cut off. And so we're thinking maybe, what is she cut off from? Yeah, what will become of her? Absolutely. And then this pressure from her family and boyfriend at home stay exactly the same. The second that you leave here, you're about to change. And after she's picked up from the bus station, where she's had to wait for a very long time, she has that amazing, simple smile at just seemingly being in the big city. At least, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking a couple of things, actually. I am still thinking about the peril that I sort of perceive her to be in, because when her ride comes, it's her cousin's Estonian husband, and he's pushy, and he's distracted by what's going on on the phone. He seems a little volatile, so she doesn't necessarily seem completely safe to me right away. He's not terrible. He's not screaming at her. He's trying to kind of invite her in, but with a rush. Yeah, but she can certainly relax and smile for the first time. You're right. I do like that touch. And I like how during this introduction, things are centered on, no, quite literally, the camera work even. We see her the most. She's often foregrounded. We see less of what she sees and just more of her. But we do see enough to know that this doesn't feel like a welcoming place or situation. That starts when she arrives at this fancier house. And the housekeeper there, this older woman, is clearly not friendly, examining her, dismissing her. But she's got this little corner that is finally her own, her own room, with an air conditioner, which is a big deal. So my wheels are still turning. I'm wondering, what is she going to be facing? And is she strong enough to get through whatever it is that's going to happen? So in essence, am I also kind of dismissing her or not giving her the benefit of the doubt? Well, I think there are some nice little details that subconsciously encourage us to sympathize with her. It's that sash that's the reminder of home. And we can all identify with that, being in a strange place and finding comfort in some small object that conjures up a secure connection for us. And expanding on something that you said, I even like that detail that is as simple as her cracked screen on her outdated phone. It implies an inability to have it repaired or upgraded. So we're already getting little bits of information about socioeconomics. And all of her belongings that she's brought with her, she's going to be there for at least a year. So you think, I'm taking everything with me. It fits in one bag. 
Well, as if all of that isn't unsettling enough, then we have these instances of screaming in the night that begin, that we referred to in our opening scene. Apparently this is a regular occurrence, I guess, which is what she discovers when she asks about it. And I like that she asks about it. She's very direct. Everyone seems to be in this case. So that's a character trait that I respond very positively to. And then she also exhibits a certain humility, obviously initially feeling more at home with the servants than the family. Because even though she's direct, she's asking the person that she would be accustomed to feel more comfortable with, the person probably at her same level, because she's there to work. She's there to earn money. So she doesn't ask her cousin, Anna, she doesn't ask Anna's husband, Jakob. She's talked about when she's not there. She's referred to as the help as well. So why doesn't she just sleep outside with the housekeeper and the housekeeper's husband? Kind of like they're trash. But at the same time, I think we're predisposed to feel one way about Anna. Even though she's in an incredibly vulnerable position, losing her sight essentially being on her own because her husband will be away. So because she has more money by this marital connection, I think I'm predisposed to think of her as the bad guy in this situation. So we're being maneuvered into place a little bit, maybe? Am I being manipulated into being on Noak's side already? Are there red flags that I'm missing that I should see now? Or is it just years of thinking one way about certain people? Is it everything that I bring into any viewing? Well, I certainly gravitate to wanting to protect that character because the treatment that she receives, it's very alienating and disorienting. Lines are not very clearly drawn in this household, and it's not long before we learn that there are a lot of trust issues going on here. Well, here's another person that I already don't trust, and that is one of Anna's friends, who is another rich person who seems to be judging Noak as well and is insisting that Anna get out of the house. Let's go get some coffee or something. Meanwhile, Noak is left behind. There's some money on the counter, and Noak tells the housekeeper that Madam told her she could take it for some phone credit. And then, meanwhile, we get this first glimpse of what it is that Anna is seeing. Yeah, we get the first inkling of Anna's visions, and they're obscured initially, like any good introductory shot of spooky elements that lets your imagination do a lot of the work. But it does look a little to me like a disheveled note. Did it strike you that way? It did. Not the first time, but the second time it did. Her hair is pulled down, and it definitely seems to be a woman... She's coughing, which throws me off a little bit. And this does set a pattern, though, for these other visions to come of more infirm ghosts. They sort of look like falling ash or are they dots? So you're not sure, is she actually seeing something or is this indicative of a larger actual vision problem? We're not sure exactly if she's seeing something, but I think even more important, she can't be sure because... Anna is partially sighted at this point. She's not completely blind. So there is this extra layer to consider of, am I imagining this or is this really in front of me? Her senses are in revolt. She can't fully trust them. And these hallucinations are auditory as well. So they are overwhelming and frightening to her. And one thing that that made me think, do you feel like her history of self-harm that's implied 
is actually self-defense against these apparitions, or does it imply something else to you? I don't think I was inclined to think that, for example, she was maybe hysterically blind or that it was a symptom or a manifestation of this other problem that she was having that would be psychological. So then if I assume that these things are actually happening, that she's actually seeing something, I'm then more inclined to believe that whatever she is doing isn't self-harm. It is protection. Also, another thing I was going to ask, it is a recurring theme in Maddie Doe's films to have these women who are somehow infirmed or confined that are having visions of a sort. And I think this belongs to a much longer tradition, even a literary tradition. For example, a major thing like the yellow wallpaper. Are there things in particular about this theme that speak to you? What speaks to me is a bit of what I was mentioning earlier, this idea of just hysterical blindness or hysteria in general, that the question always comes down to, is it really happening? Is it something wrong with this woman? That that's generally our inclination as opposed to thinking that the supernatural realm is actually interfering here. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the yellow wallpaper, and that's where my mind goes as well. And in that situation, it was a change coming over the woman. And I think it often is maternity, menopause, something like that, that throws into question her sanity. So it's so interesting that it's happening with a very young woman. And I can understand why she might not be trusted here. So for example, if you're judged by the company you keep, Mimi is a jerk, and I think Anna seems like she can only feel valid in Mimi's eyes by feeling like she's better than someone else, which would be Noak. Well, I want to talk about the lottery for a second. The lottery plays a huge role in this story, and it's a big deal in Laos, the lottery. It's one of those things that we might not immediately get the significance of. I'm always wary of missing things just because of my cultural biases, and this falls under that category. It's so different from how we think of the lottery in the U.S. And it's such an interesting choice in terms of how it manifests itself via these supernatural visitations. In this case, in this film, it's the upper-class character, Anna, that controls access to this info. She is the key, the doorway to this. Were she able to consciously access it, it would be a way that the wealthy could further perpetuate their wealth. Instead, though, in this case, it's given in fits and starts to the lower class character, Noak. And it raises questions of income inequality, gatekeeping, trickle-down economics. I do want to come back to Anna for just a second in her situation. So we're considering her part of this upper class, upper wealthy class. But really... As the film goes on, it's essentially her husband who is the person who has access to this money and then gives it to her. She comes from a more solidly middle class background. And so then if she were to have access to that information to be able to win the lottery for herself, it would open up a completely different world, a different opportunity for autonomy and equality in her own right. So I think it throws another more interesting light on this question of stealing this money from the counter versus taking this money that you have possibly earned. And from whom is she stealing or taking? 
And I also want to mention a specific piece of context here. When we're talking about the Lao kip to US dollar ratio, that would be 10,000 kip to $1. And 10,000 kip was what was on the counter. She took 5,000 to get this phone credit and saved the rest. So 50 cents is what we're talking about here. And I'm still so interested to see how money keeps playing a part in this story. For example, when Anna gets hurt by one of these visions, she's cut herself, possibly defending herself with a knife, and she's gone to her parents, and they've asked for money without overtly asking for money, because keeping face, not losing face, is a big concept. And it's so interesting that the mother here is the one who's doing the talking, asking for money, sort of, from the husband, because later on, money is going to also come into play again on her behalf. And while this is happening, she's not intervening. She's not confronting her husband. And so it makes me wonder about accepting money, these things that we do in exchange for, in at least an honest case, kind of not even being treated as a human, as a real person to be dealt with directly. Exactly. And if you're not extremely strong, or even sometimes if you are a very strong person, you could see how this could sow doubt and insecurity. And then a favorite moment for me right here relating to that, she asks, Anna asks, my husband loves me, doesn't he? And Noak's answer is perfectly delivered. It's my favorite line reading in the whole thing. I think so. She doesn't sugarcoat it or try to spin it in any way. It's almost tossed off. She can't be sure. So why would she answer in the affirmative? And the measure of that is he gives you lots of nice things. It's an interesting question all the way around, I think. It feels like a major part of the equation to me. The white European husband and the Lao wife, especially as dependent as she has to be upon him, given the circumstances of her failing eyesight. It's implied that he might even be abusive. That intro, the screaming in the night section that we talked about earlier, we're allowed to think that this might be a possibility. Because he's the one who basically is standing at the door shirtless and she's there in the bed alone. And then he exerts a disproportionate amount of control over her health care. He's really overzealous about her treatment. He speaks over her. He speaks for her. How did you respond to all of that when you're watching this? Well, he says, I'm more worried about her mental health and immediately asks for antidepressants, which to me would suggest he thinks she's crazy. He thinks she's a danger to herself. And it's got me questioning it as well. Even as Anna is expressing that vulnerability to Noke about, I think sometimes I see these things in the shadows, that I was wondering, does she even have a right to be vulnerable, because this vulnerability seems to be based on the need to be taken care of, but she's constantly being set up to be in that position. Mm -hmm. I was left wondering the whole time, who actually cares for her, both in the sense of a nurse and a confidant or lover or husband? Cares about and cares for? She really is almost a distraction to him. He's too busy trying to keep all these balls in the air to avoid the repercussions of his shady business practices. And the themes surrounding the implications of their interracial relationship, the corrupt nature of his work as an interloper in the country, 
And then just that intersection of Lao and European cultures, all of those are so deftly handled. I think they're the most smartly written parts of the whole film, actually. They're so subtle sometimes that you don't even notice they're taking place until you think back on them later. It's clearly not just a ghost story. But it is a ghost story, too, because there is that confession that you just referred to that Anna makes to Noke about seeing things. And here's another great series of ideas colliding. These urban ghosts from the past that are reasonable, but then it's implied that similar rural traditions aren't. The implication being that they're a little backward or unsophisticated. And then you get Noke applying a home remedy to Anna instead of modern medicine, quote unquote. So you have a clash here of science and superstition, and it causes an infection. So there's a metaphor for you. And I didn't really think about it then, but Noke is not our savior here. She's not our angelic country person who has all of this deep wisdom, if only we would listen. From what I can glean, Lao culture is rife with superstitions and various intersecting religions. Matty Doe says that it's accepted fairly universally. But it makes me wonder if there are differing levels of acceptance between classes. Perhaps in the most general terms, things like ghosts or visions or possession, people would accept those as a matter of course. And I said a moment ago that this is clearly not just a ghost story, but I'm not even sure I would call it a ghost story exactly. It edges up to that for me, but not quite. I think of it more as a folklore story. And we'll get into more specifics about that in a little bit. Maybe I'm splitting hairs there unnecessarily, but to me, the horror comes from human defects, not the spirit realm. What do you think? I'm with you because when we talk about lottery ghosts, they exist to give you winning lottery numbers. And with that seems to come materialism, number one, and even, I think, a sense of entitlement. Right, because Noke maintains her appeal for me for quite a while here. She's curious. She's forthright. You do root for her a little when she plays the lottery and you're happy when she wins. Absolutely. I don't begrudge her getting the money per se in this, you know, more theoretical realm. We're right. talking about there's a big city, but it's not the population concentration that's so dense than the rest of the country. Most people do live very low income in more rural areas. Right. So she gets to the phone, which we know she needed, but only after being insulted during the process. Which I think still continues to put us on her side, right. wouldn't you say? Yeah. Class issues abound in virtually every conversation and even in the simplest transactions. But then I see that mask start to slip a little. She does begin to pick up more material possessions as she wins further. So then, does that start to make us think a little more poorly of her. But what does that say about us? I'm thinking about your really interesting anecdote during our Daisies episode, where you talk about Persepolis. And it's really easy for me to talk about financial entitlement. What's so bad about getting a new purse? Yeah, it's kind of impossible to see the purity of heart when you're watching someone go shopping in the mall. Because if the entirety of your possessions fit in one bag... Do you have some sort of an obligation to then take that money and give it to others? The monks, for example, you are supposed to be saving to yeah, help your family. There we go. Would they have done the same thing if they were in your shoes? We'll get to that answer eventually. 
In the meantime, before we go on, I don't want to forget to circle back to something you said about the doctor visits. We find out at one of her doctor visits that mental health solutions aren't available in Laos, only Thailand. And I've read that this is a situation that pervades a fair amount of Lao culture, having to rely on Thailand for a lot of things. For example, Thai films. Right. It's definitely that case with the media. A great amount of that comes over to Laos from Thailand. And I do take it as accurate because Doe says that she really wants her films to be a window to Laos as she knows it in general, and specifically to not adhere to a lot of the aesthetic tropes that are often associated with Asian horror. She wants to present Laos the way it looks to her. So that implies to me there's not a lot of export of that culture, for one thing, but it's even hard within the culture itself because the infrastructure and the resources are so limited and Thai output is taking up so much of that space. I want to talk about those antidepressants again and something that they made me think, again, probably my Western lens here. He immediately brings up those drugs with no input from her, but at the same time, it seems like everything she is doing is digging her further and further in this pit of obliviousness. Because as you mentioned, we learn about this major financial trouble that he's in, and his solution seems to be we basically have to cut and run. We've got to leave Laos, and she won't go. But at the same time, she's not seeming to do anything helpful. It's just We'll stay here. It'll all be the same. We'll figure it out mainly, or you'll figure it out. But I'm just going to keep on this path. Yeah, that scene underlined for me how little there seems to be here in terms of healthy relationships. So much in every direction. Up, down, laterally, within families, external to families. It's all transactional or about leverage. This notion that a pregnancy will help Anna manipulate Jakob into returning to Laos after a time. Because that solved everything for <laughs> everybody in the past. Right. And then Nok is reliant on Anna for her status while she's simultaneously exploiting her. And even then, that status isn't that much. It's somewhere between she's not quite help, she's not quite family. There's certainly an obvious divide between Nok and the rest of Anna's friends, like you say. But their family association, it keeps Noak's head above that servant waterline, at least for now. So she has all the benefits of having run of the house for a while. And then it happens all the way down to the dead being exploited by the living with Noak using that small advantage to get access to these lottery numbers that come from Anna's fugue states. But for all this maneuvering, it never feels to me, at least, like anyone is truly winning or gaining ground. Does it strike you the same way? It does seem like constant lateral moves, if anything, or that analogy I used earlier, digging yourself further down into something. And when Noak suggests that she can be helpful somehow to Anna in maybe unlocking these visions or having her manage more easily, I can't imagine what her helpful plan is would be at this point. It seems like she's just constantly undermining Anna. So I had a question here for you, but that sounds like you might already be leaning towards a specific answer. I was going to ask, do you think that these two women are becoming closer or is Anna just reaching out from fear? Anna has introduced that endearment, little sister, 
But I still think that that vulnerability, that closeness that she may be looking for is still a chance to try to rely on someone, which seems way more one-sided. And I think Noke seems happy about this turn of events. I think she would rather be close than not, but there still seems to be some sort of scheme possibly slowly unfolding, even oh. if it's a low-level scheme. I was going to say, you think that's genuine? You think that's happiness and actually having a connection, not here is a further way that I can get in to get what I want? It seems less insidious and more like, I'm happy that maybe I could be comfortable sleeping in the house and eating at the table. I'm slightly having my position elevated. Well, I'm conflicted about it again, at least at this point in the film with what we know. In retrospect, maybe not. Because I think a bit later on when Note gets so angry that she's not allowed to go out mm -hmm. and go enjoy herself, that I think she feels like she's attained to something, that they have achieved some level of closeness that then is completely gone. Yeah, I tend to default with this question back to what Doe herself says about being interested in telling women's stories and what motivates that for her. It's not something that happens a lot in Lao cinema. And she specifically cites her experiences growing up in ballet and with refugee communities that pitted women against each other to succeed or to get access to limited resources. So maybe this is just how she conceives of the natural state of things, this adversarial relationship. I don't think the characters can truly connect given this background and the fact that there is such a power imbalance in their relationship. I don't see Anna's impairment as leveling the playing field in that significant of a way. Do you see them being on equal footing in any way whatsoever? Absolutely not. And I think that this isn't really specifically a woman's story. She's built these characters, and they're portrayed by women, and they are fitting into certain elements of society, but this is something that's much more about character. Well, in terms of something that is very gender-specific, you already brought it up just a second ago, how do you feel about the way that this endearment sister is used specifically in the title and the way it takes on an edge? It comes at the greatest cost to both of them. It's something that I believe is more common in Lao culture to be used for people who are not necessarily family members, but in broader terms, someone that you are bringing in close to you, setting them apart from more casual acquaintances. And by the end, they've spoken more directly to each other than to anyone else. It is the closest relationship that they've developed. And I don't mean close in terms of affectionate. You're right, and it does open certain doors between them. You brought it up just a minute ago. Noke asking Anna about her visions, how she interacts with them, trying to figure out how this works, how she can exploit it even further, it seems like. And Anna can't express too much about it. She really is just a lottery number generator when she is in one of these states. Without knowing it, she still doesn't know that this is what's taking place. Noak has not revealed this information, even when given the chance. Now, does any of this suggest sensory compensation to you? Are you given a sixth sense when you lose one of your regular five? I'm more familiar with, I guess, compensating with one of your other five senses if you were to lose one of those. So it doesn't seem like everybody gets the shine if they, you know, can't see anymore. It's not just standard issue to see dead people. I guess maybe if I lose one of my toes, I'll let you know. Okay. Well, speaking of seeing dead people, while we're on the subject, 
these lottery ghosts, they're allow folkloric mainstay. In addition to other places like Singapore and the Philippines, a few cultures have this tradition. And this idea intrigues me a lot. As a general rule, the things we fear, I think it says a lot about us. And the parts of religion or superstition that we cling to, they're very revealing. So what do you make of this otherworldly manifestation of spirits that just want to ensure good luck and financial well-being for you? It seems so odd that it would give one person that leg up in the luck department over another person. Are they somehow more deserving than this other mm, person? You see that in every religion everywhere. Are God's going to let our team win the Super Bowl, etc., etc.? Got it. And they are primarily female ghosts, which is interesting, but I don't quite know what to make of that either. Yeah, it seems very gentle and benign, even though in this case, some of the visitations are a little gory and frightening with their appearance or the real world loss that their appearance suggests. Yes, because these people don't look to have died of old age and, you know, happiness with a smile on their face. They seem to have had something happen to them. Yeah, when I really think about it, I have a ton of questions about these ghosts. Who are these numbers intended for? Did this happen before Noak arrived? Why is Anna in particular being targeted for this? The implication is typically, at least the way we think of it in the West, the hauntee has done something to deserve this haunting. These sorts of visitations are rarely random, so what makes her the target or the doorway, more accurately, like I said earlier? Right, because if she's in that other category of being basically the vessel for it, Usually it would then be she's imparted some information that she's supposed to then have some responsibility to deal with. I say it's benign. In this situation, that's not the case necessarily. It comes with a double edge. It's not a fair trade in a lot of these cases. We would rather not suffer such a profound personal loss. But are these winnings any consolation for those? Anna's father thinks as much. He sends Noak out to play the lottery while literally sitting beside his wife's deathbed, which might be shocking or at least a little surprising to Western viewers. What was your reaction to that? I guess I thought pragmatically it's going to cost money for this treatment. And so why not? If this is such a part of the culture that we all accept as being a thing, yes, let's take advantage of it. There's just no inherent honor in being poor, I guess, is what I come down to. I think I'm more inclined to consider the end result. Even if the apparitions have nothing but the best intentions, inequalities aren't rectified, it seems like, by any of these activities. No one is given an advantage or redeemed by the ghost's efforts, ultimately. That's what feels like the most tragic thing to me. Now, is that because of systematic conditions that make the poor stay poor? Or do you feel like that is just a larger question of human nature in general being so corruptible? If folklore is still at the basis of this, it seems like it's got to be human nature, that we're going to be continually punished for being offered this opportunity, but not doing something great with it. So speaking of the dark side of human nature, how about those servants? If anything, these conspiratorial servants are worse than ghosts. Because right from the get-go, we know that the housekeeper has moved furniture so that Anna is going to hurt herself because she can't know her own house. Completely untrustworthy, dismissive, rude, they don't accept Noak as one of their own. Definitely not likable folks here. Noak's money disappears from under her pillow. 
There's this constant jockeying for favored status within the household. Eventually, Noak causes their dismissal. Now, I've never had, nor have I ever been, a servant. So the dynamic here is a little difficult for me to get a handle on. There's one element that I just don't get, and I wanted to see what your opinion is on this. Is the resentment justified? I guess I go back to something that we talked about earlier. What you do, what you're willing to put up with, or be treated as in exchange for money. They're there to do a job, but it is clearly much more than that, at least in my sense. They live in, they're required to sleep outside, eat outside. They don't have names, even. They're called by what their jobs are. And so they do their job, they get their money. That would typically be the end of it. But it seems like they're called upon for so much more than that, and then take so much more advantage of that for their own gain and to actively harm others. But Anna and Jacob are not despots. They're not royal tyrants. They're also regular people who have more money and can employ these people. But when we think about everything being so close to the bone, 5,000 kip, 10,000 kip, making or breaking someone, it seems like those stakes are pretty high. So if everybody comes with a sense of entitlement, why not them too? I guess so. I just don't understand. Coming from my perspective, if you hire me to do a job, even if that job is of household servant, as long as you have accurately described the job for me and the circumstances and demands of that job do not change once I start and you treat me with respect, then I do the job and there's nothing else to talk about. And I probably know people that think the resentment is justified, people that I may have worked with before, for example. But you know what the job is going in. You are free to not take it. You want to be mad at someone because they have more money than you and hired you to do a job? How dare they offer you a livelihood, I guess? Grow up. Yes, and I still want to say let's let the streets run red with the blood <laughs> of the capitalists. But I totally get what you're saying. I'm going to flip this and give you sort of a cold question. Okay. Does the sense of entitlement engender cruelty or do cruel people naturally come with a sense of entitlement? I think it's the latter. I think it's an inborn cruelty that causes all the problems. The one thing I think of as an example here, the two guys who did the North Hollywood shootout, the two guys who built their body armor and tried to rob that bank, which then set off this 40-minute firefight in the streets of Hollywood between them and the police. Before they pulled this bank job, they used to drive around wealthy neighborhoods and park in front of houses and get angry at the people who lived in the houses for having a nicer house than them. That's something that's born inside you, I think. It can be fostered, obviously, by a specific kind of environment, but I don't think the average person has that sort of entitlement to the degree that it causes this kind of problem that I'm talking about in real life, true crime, or this kind of problem in the film. I like that Matty Doe is making this problematic for us because it's the Western person who is referring to the housekeeper as basically lazy. If you don't watch them all the time, they won't do their jobs. And yet, they are still real people doing really terrible things. Well, you sort of hinted at it already, and eventually, as these things unfold, we discover that none of them are good people. And I want to go back to a thing that you brought up earlier. Noak is pressured to send money home 
It's one of the main reasons that she came here in the first place. And it turns out she has not been meeting her end of that deal. Now, with things getting desperate, she exploits Anna to specifically induce one of these states for the first time. So avarice and covetousness are obviously defining characteristics for her at this point. We have crossed a certain threshold. Noak kept the numbers for herself instead of giving them to Anna's father, so he did not win that lottery errand that he sent her out on, but she kept the winnings. In that moment, when we get to this point right here, do you feel like this is the first time that we are seeing true deceit, or was it more of a gradual decline, a slide into gray rather than black and white? I was trying to think about that step from taking the numbers and getting this money and not telling anybody about it to then actively moving the furniture herself. So I guess there's no question about where her allegiance lies. It's all for her. Yes, she seems to have been given multiple opportunities to reverse this course, to go down a different path and doesn't take it. But is that wrong of her? We know that she's a habitual line stepper at this point. She borrows, quote unquote, shoes, earrings. I think the point you're getting at and the thing that I agree with here, independence is one thing, but thievery is another. And then I'm so interested later on when she actually reveals what she's done with the money. She didn't actually have to do that, but it seems to be for that sort of saving face thing again. Well, the way it works out, or at least in one of these situations, Jakob seems to understand it. He is ready to write it off as youthful indiscretions. But is he who you really want on your side when it comes to issues of character? He's not the moral compass no. <laughs> that I would want to be following. But you can understand sometimes, or I won't say you, I'll say me. I can understand why sometimes finding that easy path to forgiveness seems like a great way to go. Well, it's not all that easy. She suffers a demotion because of this. She is now fully aligned with the help. In fact, when it's just her and them, she obviously occupies a space beneath them. But it's clear that we have Noak holding down the greed spot. But what I wanted to ask on the other end of this spectrum, is Anna also involved in this round of seven deadly sins on the other side of things with pride? Most importantly, is this what justifies her ultimate demise? I don't know if I found her behavior to be as severe as Noakes' transgressions. Did you? I didn't. I mean, I do think there is terrible decision-making because she has brought another life into this equation by getting pregnant I believe on purpose, so that she can force her husband's hand, and she has now then gone fully into the realm of tyrant by making Noak be in her debt. But should that result in her murder? Maybe it does because of something that you said earlier. I wanted to circle back to that too. I am not familiar enough with how important things like losing face or status are in Lao culture. The things I've been exposed to, I think of that as historically a Japanese characteristic. And in those cases, it's enough to commit suicide over. So why not murder? Doe does say that Laos has its share of that as well. And it's interesting because it works on a metatextual layer also. It's a theme of the film, but she also describes instances where you have to pick and choose your battles as a director on the set with some of the cast and crew, because if you cause them to lose face, they'll just leave and not ever come back to work. 
I think more than anything, this is what strikes me as being the great benefit to horror, that when you have no heroes, horror really works. That the direction of the story can be so unexpected that these characters don't have to follow these patterns we think they're going to. That they don't have to be necessarily likable or pitiable. It seems like they have this same motive of self-preservation. And part of that is trying to justify or seek this lifestyle that they seem to feel that they're entitled to. While we're talking about the effectiveness of horror elements, I want to ask you about this. Is the eeriness amplified because these apparitions also appear in the daytime? Or is that feeling as pronounced for you since Anna is our conduit for that and she's in a perpetual sort of darkness? Even when she sees those visions, there's still some lightness to it. And so more than anything, I go back to my analog of having night terrors. And so forever, I thought that I really did just see ghosts because that's what would be presented to me. But that was at night. If I were to start seeing them during the day, it seems like it would take on an even more horrific element. And this film doesn't rely on jump scares or anything like that. I think the music and the sound effects play a great part here. But we already know that sometimes we can't trust our vision at night, and then if we can't trust it during the day, we're left with nothing. So overall, I felt like the film was really unnerving and unsettling, not necessarily terrifying, but I don't think that's what she was going for, do you? No, I think it's exactly the tone that she meant to strike. It's just enough to keep us off balance. Like I said, more of a folklore story than a ghost story. I know we're hurtling toward the end here, but before we get there, I do want to say... Special shout out to Jakob's friend and colleague, who seems to be the only honorable and fully honest person in this whole rogues gallery. And by the way, Kenji is in all of her films. You were talking about not being able to trust your vision. Anna has now had her eye surgery, and she is on the mend. She is recovering, it being implied that her full sight will eventually return. In the meantime, though, Noke is moved back into the house to care for her, since the other staff has been dismissed, but once Anna can see, she makes it very clear, that's it. This relationship is going to be severed. You go home with nothing. And now that's also to no one, because we've discovered that Noak's boyfriend has since moved on too. So it's quickly reaching a point where she has nothing left to lose. Anna's played her cards a little too early though, because now Noak is holding her hostage for one last set of numbers... She's forcing her to eat Lao food like the little people she tells her that she's forgotten. Nope neglects cleaning Anna's eyes. It's true torment. So I guess it's becoming clear. I asked in the beginning if I should have resisted this instinct to align myself with Noke. I knew the answer when I asked. Trick question. In retrospect, Noke has always been morally suspect. It's easy to see when we make our way backward through the movie. But I do admit to being taken in for a good probably half to two-thirds of the film. It really is one of the film's strong suits that you can never be entirely sure about your allegiance to any given character. She is now, we see, the type of personality that can be compromised when you combine ambitions, however mild, with that feeling of nothing left to lose, which makes her extremely dangerous. Even just the notion that there has to be something better out there is enough to open the moral floodgates for her at this point. Because if she stays at her village, what is her life going to be like there? 
Certainly there are people that could be satisfied with that lifestyle, but she is definitely not one of them. We see how susceptible she is to the glamorous lure of worldly possessions and status. And fortunately, I'm grateful that the film really takes its time to show us all these layers of that, especially having to do with class, how they intersect, the potential or lack thereof for vertical or even lateral movement within this social structure. So I can really feel how crucial all of this is to her. And really, at this point, nobody's going to make it out alive. The servants come back and basically everyone is now rising up against this couple. They are the ones who strike the fatal blow to Jakob, who is coming back to take care of Anna. Yeah, we have these exclamations that she treated them like dogs. She begins to say, I never. They tell her to shut up. Is any of that true, though? It's all about perceptions from where you sit, I guess. Note herself, she's negotiating her freedom now, but it's absolutely too late at this point. Anna has seen their simultaneous end. No one wins, except for the servants who are loading up the truck with all the household possessions. I will say, think about our life, and our dogs eat at the table with us, so (laughs) (laughs) we treat our dogs better, I think, than Anna treated the servants, but that still doesn't make anything right. But in this case, ultimately, when it comes down to it at the most important level, it's family that's canceling each other out. There is truly a homicidal blurring of all those lines, and we've seen that a lot lately. Asian films examining this kind of class conflict, particularly with fatal consequences, they've been doing brisk business in the last couple of years. Burning, shoplifters, Parasite is cleaning up at all the award shows this year. This film predates all of those in addressing these issues. But it's probably maybe a little too much to ask that a genre film get a little credit for kickstarting that whole thing. So the end, I guess. One important thing I want to make sure we get to before we move on to recommendations. This seems like it would have been much more a cold choice, both in terms of genre and my connection to Fantastic Fest. Did we accurately cover why you felt it was so important to talk about? I think we did without me unnecessarily beating the drum for, wow, look at what this amazing female filmmaker has done. It just got me completely by surprise. I went into it blind, as I winked at before, and I actually had a different film chosen for this slot, and I was so bowled over by this, I said, I want to talk about this right now. Part of that is because of these other things that we had been talking about and watching. La Ceremonie came up again as well. And so I thought, this amazing genre film has made me feel so much. It's a sophomore effort that doesn't feel like one. It feels so assured and accomplished that I just want to shine a light here. And we've talked briefly before about the excitement of feeling like you're on the ground floor of something. And I feel like that with Maddie Doe. Yeah, it's a great time for people to get invested in her career. You've got two features right now. Actually, a third one, The Long Walk, that is making the festival rounds literally as we are recording this. It is a small but growing and very fruitful body of work that you can check out now and say, oh, yeah, I was watching those movies when. And how often do we get to see the snapshot into Lao culture? Very, very seldom. And it's a fascinating snapshot. Well, what else do you have for us that might be a fascinating snapshot? What's your recommendation this time? Surprise, I picked Parasite from (laughs) 2019, directed by Bong Joon-ho, with Song Kang-ho, Chao Wu-shik, 
Park Sodem, and Chang Haijian. It's about a poor family who, step by step, all become employed by a much wealthier household by posing as unrelated, qualified professionals. And I picked it for the reasons that you mentioned. We had so many conversations around our feelings about the characters, their sense of entitlement, how that changed or did not through the course of the film. And it has gotten so much press, and I think quite rightly. I think it's fascinating to look at this different culture and to try to look at these larger social questions without, as Maddie Doe has put it, forcing Western solutions on non-Western problems. And then I'm going to paraphrase her a little bit from my own words, and also to try to remove that lens we may have of finding poverty charming or demonizing wealth. How about you? Well, my recommendation this time is Bedeviled from 2010, and my connection here is Fantastic Fest. That's where I discovered this as well. It was directed by Jang Chil Su and stars Seo Young Hee and Ji Sung Wan. And I want to make clear, these films are not alike. And this is definitely an other side of the coin type of connection in just about every way. It's not subtle in any of the ways that Dearest Sister is. It's about a tense and stressed out young woman who works at a bank that decides, read that as, is forced to take a vacation and decides to return to the tiny island where she was born. So you have a reversal already of Dearest Sister's move from rural to urban. She chooses this destination in part at the behest of her lifelong friend that still lives there. Things, of course, don't go as planned. Things build to an inescapable head, and we have another pair of women with a profound connection that are fatally locked in one another's orbit. It is much more outright horror than Dearest Sister, but it straddles genre lines in a similar fashion, in this case, starting as what feels like a drama and then morphing into a gruesome revenge picture. Fantastic Fist really is where these films probably have the best chance at finding their audience. Films that are stretching the boundaries of what genre film can be, films that may be a little bit confounding or too much of a hybrid for traditional audiences. Highly recommended if you like seeing the various uses of a sickle outside of harvest time. Yikes. So <laughs> once again, that's two great recommendations, Parasite and Bedeviled. And that brings us to the end of episode 124. First and foremost, we want to say a special thanks to David Blakesley for returning to support our Patreon. Now that our network is no more, we appreciate that a great deal. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We're on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films podcast. The fine gentleman over at Fuds on Film. Josh Hornbeck and the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast. Jeff Duncanson. Rob Langley. Joshua Wilson. Phil DeCane. And Stephanie Shanahan. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so that we can say thanks. 
We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. A special thanks goes out this time to Preston Medeiros for his very nice iTunes review. We appreciate that very much. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 